0: The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning, saints of uh, Redeeming Grace Fellowship. Um, If you're watching this on Sunday, happy Sunday, Um, and I know this isn't the traditional uh, ideal setting for us to hear the Word of God, uh, but may we give our hearts to Him as we come before Him this morning in worship. Um, If you have a Bible, uh, if you have a paper copy of your Bible, would you turn it to 1 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Samuel chapter 7, and we will make our way from there first samuel chapter 7. all right let's pray let's pray first samuel chapter 7. father we come before you this morning and we uh understand that this setting is not ideal father but we thank you for the technology that we have to be able to hear your word uh, from our local church. Father, I pray that you'd bless uh, the hearers, the people who are listening to this this morning. Uh, for those who believe in you, to those that are following you, I pray that they would uh, press in and lean in uh, to be well fed from you, oh God, this morning, and that they would have a fresh look at your face, a fresh, a fresh look at Jesus as they run the race. And Father, for those who do not believe, I pray that they would Uh, run to the cross for refuge and for the forgiveness of their sins and Lord I pray that you would fill me you'd fill me with um, compassion and unction and power to be able to proclaim your word uh, in the way that I should Uh, I pray that your people would be built up and I pray that Thanksgiving would abound uh, to the glory of God I pray this in Jesus name amen so um, Rocky Franny and their kids, Um, Jonathan Rodriguez and I were at a diner in Garden City uh, about about a few weeks ago, and this was maybe the week after I got uh, my car in in February. And so we're having lunch after uh, worship on Sunday, and uh, eventually we got to the topic, uh, as it would happen eventually, about cars, about cars. And, uh, you know, we were just talking about how American cars Uh, Just uh, some of them, a lot of them, just aren't that great. Not offending those uh, of you guys who drive uh, American cars. They break down sometimes easily. Uh, Some of the more expensive cars um, are expensive to maintain. Um, And so we came to a place where we're like, yeah, the Hondas, the Subarus, the Toyotas are are really reliable. uh, Are really uh, reliable for longevity. They, They live long and they're easy. To deal with. They're easy to deal with. And so why do I tell you that story? Well, now you have to say to find out as we get back to it uh, later. So you should have your Bibles turned to 1 Samuel chapter 7. uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. And so before we get into the passage, I want to start off and give us give us a little bit of context and to give us a summary of what happened until now. First, the book starts off with a barren woman, a a, a lady that cannot have uh, babies, uh, Hannah, and she is begging God for a son. And so much so that when she is praying, she says, God, if you give me this child, I will dedicate him to your service all his life. And so God hears her prayer and he is like, "Okay, I will grant you a child uh, and you will name him Samuel. You will name him Samuel and he is dedicated to serve at the temple under Eli, the priest. And so from there, we see the fall of Eli's ministry as him and his sons act evil, act in, a, in an evil way uh, towards God. And we see the rise of Samuel and his ministry uh, in the temple. Samuel is growing, he is gaining favor with God and man, and he is serving faithfully. Eli's ministry is falling apart Uh, His sons are described simply in this way, that they did not know the Lord. While they were serving at the temple with Dad, uh, they were uh, sleeping with women at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they were scamming people who were bringing offerings by taking more than they should have. And so Eli's ministry is falling apart, and God says to Eli, All right, Eli, you are fired. You're fired. You don't care about my offerings, and your sons definitely don't care about honoring me. No one in your house will serve me ever again. And so see, we see the fall of Eli, and then we see that Samuel, in this, at the same time, is raised as a prophet. He's raised as a prophet. And so we skip to chapter 4, and then uh, we come to Israel going out to battle, as they did so much in the book of Judges, uh, and, and prior to that. Um, and then they lose. They lose against the Philistines. And anytime you see uh, Israel losing a battle, it is showing us that God's hand is against the Israelites. God's hand is against the Israelites for their evil and their sin against God. And so as they lose this Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God is captured, and this Ark of the Covenant symbolizes Uh, God's presence among his people God's presence among his people with it they succeed and without it they fail with it They succeed and without it they fail and So the Philistines bring this thing home and they're like, yeah, this is so cool We're gonna try this thing out and we're gonna get success uh, everywhere we go Uh, but uh, everything turns out horrible for the Philistines For one, it doesn't sit well with their god, Dagon, in their temple, and more so, everywhere the ark goes in Philistia, the land of the Philistines, uh, the people are afflicted with tumors. They're afflicted with tumors, and so they're like, all right, we got to get rid of this thing. Send it back to where it came from. Send it back, send it back, send it back. Kind of like that weird toy that your child brings home, and it's like so much trouble in the house, and you're like, all right, send that thing back, because... I knew I shouldn't have let you bring that thing home. So that's what uh, the Philistines are going through uh, with the ark. And so here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, One thing I need you to keep in mind is that Israel lost the battle against the Philistines in chapter 4. And so we have to remember that God's hand is against them due to their sin and their idolatry and them serving other gods. We see the cycle in the book of Judges. Over and over, Israel would sin and chase after other gods. God would punish by giving them over to another nation. Uh, Israel would cry out to God for help, and God would, God, God would raise up a deliverer or a judge. You know, Think about Deborah or Ehud or Othniel or Samson. Right? Israel would sin, God would punish, Israel would cry out, and God would deliver. That was always a cycle. Israel sin, God punishes, uh, Israel cries out for help, and God saves. And so with that context, I'm going to start reading from our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. So the ark is is making its way back, and they're They're trying to figure out where to put it. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the Ark of the Lord. From that day, the Ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed, like 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented, or they began to seek, or they turned back to the Lord. And so Samuel sees that they are seeking God again. And so I'm going to continue in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah that is among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Verses 5 and 6, then Samuel said, gather everyone at Mizpah. And, and he says, I will pray. The first thing he's going to do, he's going to pray to the Lord for you, for Israel. So they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water, a picture of uh, tears welling up because of the sorrow of their sin. They drew up water and they poured it out. So their tears are welling up and then they pour out the water as a symbol of their sorrow and their tears flowing from their, uh, their eyes and their hearts. They poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. We have sought out other gods. We have, we have cheated on him. We have whored after other gods. And there Samuel judged the people. He governed he led, he directed them in God's ways at, the, at, the, um, at Mizpah. Verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, uh, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 9, so Samuel took a nursing lamb. This is what he does. They ask for prayer, and then he takes a nursing lamb and, and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered, with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth car. verse 12 After they win the battle against uh, the Philistines, God gives them victory. Then, verse 12, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mishpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, until now, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, they were conquered, and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their, ter- their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Right? They are the most valiant of the Canaanites. 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life like his mom had promised to dedicate. And he went on a circuit or a a crusade, if that's a better word, every year to Bethel, to Gilgal, and to Mizpah, And he judged, right? He he directed them in God's ways. He, He was their leader in all these places. And then he would return to Ramah for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. So that's 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, That's what happened. Uh, The uh, the ark comes back. Uh, They seek God again. Samuel ministers. He prays uh, for them. They get victory over the Philistines. And uh, at the end, we just hear about Samuel's worship and how he uh, ministered faithfully uh, for Israel as a judge. So that's what happened in 1 Samuel 7. I want us to see seven things this morning. Seven things that we can learn from Samuel in our passage. I want us to see seven things. Seven things. First, I want us to see Samuel's preaching. First is Samuel's preaching. Verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And so the first thing I want us to see about Samuel's preaching is that it is God centered. It is God centered. Samuel knew how idols must be dealt with because he knew God and he knew his word. He knew Exodus 34 when God said to Israel, You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their Asherim. If you don't, you will whore after their gods why why is god so serious about idols deuteronomy chapter 6 14 and 15 uh, do not go after their gods for the lord your god in your midst is a jealous god he is a jealous god in chapter 4 of of deuteronomy he says that god is a consuming fire he is a jealous god James chapter 4, verse 5, he says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us as believers. He yearns jealously over your spirit. And so a good example is husbands, you know how jealous you are for your wives. And wives, you know how jealous uh, you are for your husbands. And you yearn jealously. God yearns jealously for his people. And brothers and sisters... How can it be any other way? God pursued us hotly and relentlessly and uh, jealously when He emptied His pockets out of the overflowing love and the mercy of God when He sent us His Son and He killed Him on the cross for our sins. Romans 8 says that He who did not spare His only Son, brothers and sisters, His Son on the cross, That's why he's jealous for his people. And so, church, what are the idols in your life? What is that relationship that you need to revisit and mend? Where is that area of sexual immorality where you need to flee? What areas are you compromising faithfulness and integrity? What is that that area of man's approval that you need to forsake? Are you that person that, man, I just need everybody to like me? That's what matters. You need to to forsake that. What is that control and that anxiety that you need to uh, let go of? In in what areas are your situations bigger than your Savior? Brothers and sisters, turn your hearts to the Lord, uh, lest you go astray. As I say that in love. The second thing I want us to notice about Samuel's preaching is that it is a God-alone kind of preaching. It is a God-alone kind of preaching. I want us to see the emphasis that Samuel told them not to just serve the Lord, but to serve Him only. Serve Him only. Verse 3, Put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. Serve Him only. Uh, church, uh, jealous never shares. Jealous never shares. Isaiah 42, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I do not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. God does not share you, church, does not share me, And so that is the first thing I want us to see about Samuel's, uh, Samuel uh, in 1 Samuel 7, his preaching. Two, I want us to see his prayer life, his prayer life. See Samuel's own conviction for the importance of prayer. After Samuel tells the people to forsake idols and and turn their hearts back to God, uh, verse five, then Samuel said right after, uh, gather everybody at Mizpah and this is what I'm gonna do for you. I'm gonna pray. I will pray to the Lord for you. I will pray to the Lord for you. The first thing Samuel is compelled to do for Israel is not to go to battle, not to burn offerings, not to build tents, not, not this, not that but two pieces i will pray to the lord for you that's what you need you need my prayer you need god's blessing on you you need his favor and you need his grace and so brothers and sisters i want us to learn from that that prayer and i'm preaching to myself five times as i'm preaching to this camera once and to you brothers and sisters that prayer is not an accessory for the christian It is essential. Without it, the Christian cannot love and pursue and serve God and neighbor with undeniable resolve and conviction. Prayer isn't part of the battle. It is the battle. I need need us to see that. I need you to see that. I need me to see that. That prayer is the, that's where I'm going to do my fighting before I'm fighting anywhere else. Leonard Ravenhill, a very famous preacher in the 20th century said prayer is the poor man's language. Prayer is the poor man's language. George Whitfield, in a, in, a, in a book I read this week, he says, he said, this is how he prays, God, help me to begin to begin. That is a helpless man. That is a poor man in my book. Samuel is a poor man. If we don't pray, we're telling God that we are fine without Him. Brothers and sisters, we are not fine without God's hand on everything we do and touch and pursue. Hear what Paul Washer has to say on this. As I was at a conference in December, he says the issue isn't that we don't pray. We pray, church, I'm sure we pray. But the issue is that we do not keep on praying. We don't wear God out. We don't bother Him like the widow in Luke chapter 18. And I want us to bring this home as we hear from Samuel's farewell speech in 1 Samuel chapter 12 before he sort of exits ministry. He says in 1 Samuel 12, 23, uh, As for me... Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. If I stop praying for you, I am sinning against you. Far be it from me to stop sinning, to, uh, that I should sin against God by ceasing to pray. Brothers and sisters, this verse is actually in the Bible. That prayerlessness is sin. Prayerlessness is like sin to Samuel. Because without it, we will be easily led to sin. We heard about Samuel's uh, his preaching. We heard about his prayer life. Now I want us to see Samuel's sacrifice. The third thing I want us to see about Samuel is his sacrifice. After the people gather all together at Mizpah, the Philistines are trying to come up and attack. And they ask Samuel to pray uh, to God to save them And then before he prays, this is what he does. Verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. So quick point, Samuel understands, I want us to see that Samuel understands that in order for an effectual prayer, in order for a a communication that works, a, a working relationship, an effective relationship with God, he understands that he needs to offer an animal. He needs to offer a sacrifice to God. And so this is always how it worked in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We need a sacrifice. We need a sacrifice. That's what Leviticus is all about. In order to commune with God, we need to offer up a sacrifice. Whether it's for a dedication or the forgiveness of sins, a sacrifice needs to be offered Old Testament or new, brothers and sisters. And Samuel understood that. He understood God. He is a godly man. So we see Samuel's preaching, his prayer life, his sacrifice. I want us to see the fourth thing about Samuel I want us to learn is his worship. Samuel's worship. Eventually, as the Philistines come up and they draw close to kill the Israelites, God thundered with a mighty sound that day to confuse the Philistines and give Israel victory. And this is, this is what Samuel does right after, if you'll read with me in verse 12. He gets the victory, verse 12, this is what Samuel does. He took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. Samuel, brothers and sisters, as all the godly do, uh, give all the glory to God. He admits that none of it was his doing and that it was all God's doing. He gives all the praise to God. And when you're praying and you're depending on God and you're waiting for his hand to act, what else can you do but to give God all the glory? And I think about Paul at the end of Romans 11, after writing uh, 11 chapters about sin, about God's judgment on us sinners. God providing a substitute in Jesus, uh, that it's not by works, but by faith, that we have peace with God. We are no longer in Adam. We have died with Christ. We have been raised with him. After writing about, we have no more condemnation for us in Jesus, no more sin and blame to bear. Paul properly gives all the glory to God. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. Who has known his mind that anyone should counsel him? Who has given a gift to him that he should repay? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. And so brothers and sisters, we look back even in our own pre-Christian lives, and we look at where we are by the grace of God. I look at where I am by the grace of God. I see what I was, and I see what I am. And we cannot help but to say, with Samuel, right here I raised my Ebenezer. Until now, the Lord has helped us. Until now, the Lord has helped us. So we see his preaching, his prayer life, his sacrifice, his worship. I want us to see his impact and his victory. His impact or victory. After Samuel praises, God writes to us after uh, of Samuel's impact while judge and leader over Israel. Verse 13 and 14. So the Philistines were subdued. They were conquered and did not again enter the territory of Israel. Not again. And the hand of God was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken were restored. From Ekron to Gath and Israel delivered, excuse me, their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Not a a single day, brothers and sisters, in Samuel's reign, were the Philistines ever an issue? They never came back. They never came back. The Israelites even claimed land back that was formerly theirs under Samuel's rule. And Israel and the Amorites are at the most valiant, the strongest of the Canaanites had peace. And if I'm Israel, I want, and I need Samuel. I want him around. I want him around for forever, for as long as I can. And indeed, Israel had Samuel for as long as possible. Remember the dedication of his mom, Hannah? All the days of his life, he will serve the Lord. And so I want us to see the sixth thing about Samuel, which is Samuel's faithfulness. Samuel's faithfulness. After listing Samuel's impacts and sustainability as Israel's judge, priest, and prophet, we are told of his faithful service to God. Verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit or a crusade every year, year by year, to Bethel, to Gilgal, and to Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. And then he would, he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he would judge Israel. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Samuel served his entire life as as Hannah had dedicated, and Israel enjoyed a faithful, a godly leader, judge, prophet, and priest in Samuel. Brothers and sisters, Samuel is as good as they come in the Old Testament as one of God's servants for Israel. We see it in his preaching, we see it in his prayer life, we see it in his sacrifice, we see it in his worship, we see it in his impact or victory, and we see it in his faithfulness. But brothers and sisters, uh, Samuel is still merely a man. Samuel is still merely a man. And so I promised you seven things. This is the seventh thing. I want us to see Samuel's limitations. Samuel's limitations. He has two limitations that I want to point out. Uh, first is his sons. His sons. Uh, you would think that because Samuel is such a man of God, that his children are waiting uh, next in line to uh, serve God faithfully. But that is not the case. I don't know if Samuel was a bad parent. I don't know what it was. But if you look a little bit down in chapter 8, verses one to three read with me when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. the name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah and they were judges in Beersheba verse three yet his sons did not walk in his ways and they turned aside after gain for money. they took bribes and they perverted justice they they took money from people and they were unfair to Others, His sons were not godly like him That is one limitation The second limitation is the one we all experience And it is Samuel's death Samuel's death He simply dies like every other human being Brothers and sisters Like you and me Israel would have loved to have him as judge, priest, and prophet uh, And leader forever uh, but that is impossible for any man to do or accomplish. Well, Gideon, show me the Bible reference where he dies. All right, I will show you. 1 Samuel 25. Now Samuel died. Now Samuel died. Imagine how let down Israel was. Right? With him, they had so much peace. They had such good preaching. They had someone who would pray. They knew someone who could worship. He had a priest, a prophet, and a judge. And so Israel, after Samuel dies, I'm sure is very, very let down. But God is trying to show us that Samuel is only a man. And he is telling us that Samuel, like all the other men in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, or king, is not it. And so we zoom out of Samuel and we look at all of the Old Testament. And we see two things. We see that all of God's servants are merely fallible, limited, and even sinful men. Abraham the idolater, Isaac, Jacob the liar, and the deceiver. It's not him. It's not Joseph. It's not Moses the murderer. It's not Joshua. It's not Deborah. It's not a judge. It's not Samuel. It's not David. It's not Elijah. It's not Elisha. It's not Jeremiah. It's not a king. It's not a prophet. It's not a priest. And so God is telling us one thing, that it is not those guys. Because after they serve, Israel just goes astray, and they go astray, and they go astray, over and over again. God is telling us those are not it. He is not it. Samuel is not it. Look at what Hebrews tells us in chapter seven, verse twenty-three about this reality that the former priests, or you could put prophet or king or whatever you want, they were many in number. They were a lot of them because they were uh, uh, they were prevented because they were prevented by death. So there were so many of them, prophet after prophet, priest after priest. There were so many because they die, and you got to replace one after they die. What do you do after your car dies? You buy a new one. Right? What do you die after your phone does? You get a new one. And it's the same way with the Old Testament servants of God. They die, and so they cannot serve. Samuel died, and so Israel loses a good, godly servant of God. Oh, and that's good news for us because the story is not telling us about any, the story of the Bible is not about any of those men that I listed. The Bible is not about Samuel because it tells us of not a man, but the God man, the Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself, the only one who is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Hebrews 7 24, a little bit later, but He, Jesus, holds His office, He serves permanently. Because he continues forever. Brothers and sisters, Jesus never dies. Therefore, he is able to save fully or completely those who draw near to God through him. Not through Samuel, not through David, not through Moses, but through Jesus. He will save completely. He will save fully. You will not go astray if you are in Jesus since he always lives to intercede for them. Imagine Israel's... uh, discouragement after Samuel dies. They go astray after other gods. But brothers and sisters, uh, Jesus, since the day you were saved, even before you were lost, you were found. And until now, he has kept us. And thus far, his love has led us and his love will lead us home. He has kept us because he will not die. He's not going to die tomorrow and he's not going to die whenever. Whenever. And so the whole book of Hebrews is telling us one message, and it's that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And so we look back to what we learned about Samuel today, and we see that Jesus is better than Samuel in all of these ways. Uh, One, he is the better preacher. Samuel could only tell people to repent, get rid of your idols, and turn to God. But Jesus preached himself. He preached himself who preaches himself except the lord jesus christ who said i am the way and the truth and the life i am no one comes to the father but by me you want to get to god you get through me and me alone no one in the old testament can preach himself but one man can one man in history can preach the great i am and it is the lord jesus christ he is the better preacher Two, he is the better prayer warrior, if you want to put it that way. If I have a choice between who I want praying for me, Samuel or Jesus, I want Jesus any day. One, because of the effectiveness of his prayer. His prayer works. He told Peter, I pray that your faith wouldn't fail and Peter's faith did not fail. I also want Jesus praying for me because of his heart. I want him praying for me because of his heart. As he prayed, sweating drops of blood. As he would take on my sin the very next day at the garden. He was praying so that his, God's will could be done for me, for you, brothers and sisters. He was praying. He was suffering in agony and distress so that God's will may be done for us. That we may have a relationship and peace with God, as Paul says in Romans 5. Jesus is the better prayer. The third thing I want us to see that is that Jesus is the better sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. Uh, remember that point on Samuel's sacrifice, uh, th- that uh, he offered an offering to God, a nursing lamb, before his prayer because he knew that he needed to offer an animal for effective relationship, a real effective prayer with God. Old Testament or New Testament, you guys know that an offering is necessary, whether it's an animal or whether it was Jesus who is the fulfillment of those offerings. And so, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the lamb of which all these animal sacrifices were pointing to. He is, uh, as John said in chapter one of his book, uh, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hebrews chapter 10 says, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and animals to take away sins. And so Hebrews 7 tells us that a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying he is the only sacrifice. Once for all, when he offered up himself, he has sanctified everybody who would believe in him. Not multiple offerings, but one offering. And so Jesus is saying to the Old Testament animal sacrificial system, you are out of business. You are out of business. No more offerings. As all the animal offerings were pointing to Jesus as the better and the complete sacrifice of God. Next, I want us to see that uh, Jesus brought forth a better impact and a better victory for his people. Samuel, uh, very well, he brought Israel victory. He, get, he, got, he got land back for them, and he, and he had peace uh, with the Philistines all of his uh, days. But Jesus has done more for his church and for his people. Jesus has defeated the enemy, Satan, death, and sin. Your biggest enemy. He has taken care of it and they are not coming back because Jesus defeated it. 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is from the law as it tells us we cannot keep it. 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter seven, Paul says, "'A wretched man I am in my sinfulness, "'who will deliver me from this body of death. "'Thanks be to God, it is through one man, "'Jesus Christ our Lord.'" The sixth thing I want us to see is that Jesus is a better, he provides a better faithfulness than Samuel. Samuel was so faithful in his service. He went on like a missionary crusade, and a and a and a ruling superset for you gym folks out there. Uh, he went to every year Bethel, Gilgal, Mispah, and he even judged in his home in Ramah. What a what a faithful what a faithful servant. But he is not the suffering servant. He is not the Lord Jesus. Jesus brings a better and a larger uh, faithfulness to his people because every tribe, nation, and tongue shall praise the name of Jesus. He serves, whether you are from Manhasset or you are from Plainview or Levittown or Hicksville or Wyandanche or, or Queens, wherever you are listening in, whatever country, whatever whatever your skin color is, Jesus is your ruler if you will take him as your God. Brothers and sisters, he is our ruler If you look at yourself and your skin color and your ethnicities and all these different uh, backgrounds, he doesn't cover only three or four cities like Samuel, but every tribe, nation, and tongue he serves and he covers. Hebrews 3.6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if we hold fast to the words that we believe. He is faithful to us. Whether you're from the Philippines, whether you're from uh, whether you're from uh, Korea, whether you're from uh, Guyana, wherever you're from, He is faithful over you. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope I made it clear in these minutes this morning that Jesus is better. But I don't want us to see. uh, I want us. I don't want us to only see Jesus as the King. I want. I want us. I want you to see Him as your. King, that this is the Jesus that you and I follow every single day, that he hasn't just given us knowledge about him or mere facts about him in some old book, but he gives you himself in personal, intimate relationship with him, a deep relationship with him in all of these truths, especially in times of uncertainty, of worry and chaos with this virus going around, especially in these times, He gives us Himself, not just knowledge about Him, but Him. And so to hit all our points, uh, Jesus gives you Himself in His preaching. He says, I am meek, I am humble, I am lowly in heart. He's saying, I get it, I get the worry, I get the fear. Come, and if, come you who are weary, and I will give you rest for your soul. He offers you himself in his preaching. In his prayer, Jesus, uh, brothers and sisters, I want, to, I want you to know that Jesus is praying for you. He's not just praying, he's praying for you. Romans 8, Christ is at the right hand of God and He is interceding for us. Remember a few weeks ago, I shared, I shared with you guys the Robert Murray McShane quote about how if I heard Jesus, if I could hear Him praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But the distance doesn't matter. Christ is praying for you. He is praying for me. He is praying for you. He's not just praying. He's praying for you. On the sacrifice, brothers and sisters, Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross for you. He gave himself for you. Paul says he loved me and he gave himself up for me. He gave himself up for you. Our worrying, sinful, untrusting, sinful selves. He has given himself for you, for me. This overflowing love of God has landed on you, has landed on me. In terms of impact and victory, Jesus has defeated your Satan, your sin, and your death. And so in light of that, you you experience victory over sin, Satan, I know, and death. I know the towers of sin and Satan and death seem high, but we need a higher view of our Savior than any of those things. This is better than defeating some Philistines. Jesus has given you victory. And we must believe in that for that to apply to our lives. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The sixth thing I want us to see is that Jesus is faithful, yes, but he's faithful to you. He's faithful to you. Not just in certain cities where Samuel judged, but everywhere you go he is there he is there every high every low every marriage difficulty every financial hardship every spiritual black hole whatever the hardship whatever the difficulty whatever the frustration might be he is faithful to you matthew 28 and surely i am with you always all the way to the end yes lord Because he lives forever, he can say that. He does not die. Hebrews 13, he says, I will never leave you. I will never turn my back on you. I'm never going to walk out on this relationship, is what he is saying. I'm not going anywhere. And so back to that opening story that I shared with you guys at the beginning of the message. I got a Honda CRV 2016. It's reliable. It's going to live long, and it's easy to deal with. But it reminds me of someone better. Jesus, reliable, long living, living forever, not like Samuel. And his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. From the garden to the grave, all the way to glory, he will keep you and he will cause his face to shine upon you. And so, brothers and sisters, we need a fresh look at Jesus this morning. I need a fresh look at Jesus. If you are not a believer, I want to ask you, what are you doing? What are you doing? Especially in these crazy times. At best, you're panicking. At worst, you're, 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 uh, you're living in ignorance. But I call you to turn your eyes upon Jesus for, yes, shelter, peace, and hope in difficult and stressing and worrying times like these. But more so, turn your eyes to Him for your biggest virus, your biggest problem, your biggest issue, which is your sin against God. He will not take it lightly and it will lead to eternal death in the lake of fire because God is so righteous and he hates what is evil and he loves what is good. God is madly in love with sinners, with you, with me, that he would give his son to take on your virus, to take on your sin, your diseases. And Jesus, with a smile, says, My arms are open wide today. Come and freely receive the cure for the virus of your sin. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. He's willing to not charge a single sin on your account because he bore it all on himself when he died on the cross. And so I remember the the story of the jailer asking Paul, What what must I do to uh, be saved? And Paul's answer to the jailer was simple as this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's that simple. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Flee to the everlasting arms of Jesus uh, today because you don't know what tomorrow holds. Especially in days like this, but even when it's not as crazy as it is now if you believe Christ is dead for you. And so we look at John chapter 20 and we think about doubting Thomas. And he told the disciples, I don't believe that he's risen again. And Jesus comes to meet Thomas at the house. And Jesus says to Thomas, come, come, put your fingers in my hands and your hand in my side and see that it is me whether you're a believer whether you're not the call is in this case is the same to come to Jesus if you're not a believer for salvation if you are a believer come and see his hands and his side and that he is he is uh, displaying not just the scars but the love with which he burns jealously for his people come put your hands in his side and put your fingers in his hands and see the love with which God has loved us that we should be called children of God and so brothers and sisters of Redeeming Grace Fellowship and uh, whoever else uh, might be listening and please take a look back at the passage Uh, take a look back at the notes make sure what I'm saying is from the text don't let me just persuade you uh, by what I'm saying and take a fresh look at Jesus and have him And taste his goodness for yourselves. He offers himself to you. Make him, he is yours. He's not just some airy, fairy savior in the sky, he is yours. Take him today, follow him all the days of your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. For those who believe, let it be honey to their souls. And may a fresh look at Jesus be like the the confession of the writer of Proverbs in chapter three that nothing can compare to Him. He is more precious than jewels and anything you name. Doesn't compare to knowing and following and loving and knowing the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who do not believe, Father, I pray that You would save. Thou must save, and Thou alone. And I pray that you would do it by your sovereign grace and through the prayers of your saints. Father, bless, bless the people who have heard it. Oh God, I pray that your people were well fed and that they can take a fresh look at Jesus, the King, but Jesus as their King and my King. As it is in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray, Father. Amen.